Good afternoon, church. How are you? Afternoon. Morning. It's morning. Sorry. Don't be mad. I'm 10 minutes early. It's better to be early than late. My name is Darren, and uh, I'm one of the shepherds on staff. Excited to see you, whether you're part of the family here or whether you're soon to be part of the family. You might be a guest or brought by somebody else. No matter what brings you, we're glad you're here, and we hope that you'll soon find uh, that this is family for you as well. Hey, we're going to jump into John 6 in just a second, but before we do, I want to make mention of a card that they may have handed you when you came in today. Um, it, th- this card, speaking about Easter, I know Easter maybe to you feels like it's a long way off. It's not actually that far. Um, I just want to point it out so that you know that on here you'll see our service times for our Easter services. Uh, all three of those are there. Our Good Friday service time is listed here. We've also arranged, the Summit House has arranged to let us do our uh, sunrise service up there at their gazebo again. Some of you were able to join us for that last year. It was awesome, with the one exception being there was no sunrise. So basically, it was all cloudy and overcast. I'm thinking about just putting somebody in like a sunshine costume this year, maybe, and just maybe have them sprint past at some point. But, uh, but either way, that's a great sort of family time for us to gather together. That's a very low-key, kind of acoustic worship service together up at Summit House. Um, you'll also notice on here that there's... Um, there's a partnership we're entering into. I'll give you a little bit of background on this. A couple of months ago, we as a staff were talking, and I said, man, I really don't want Easter to just be like a thing we celebrate one day a year, right? I don't want to sneak up on us and, uh, and us be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Easter's coming in a couple of days, whatever. I, like, as a family and as a church, I want us to prepare our hearts to celebrate both the death and resurrection of Christ. And to that end, then I said to the, to the team, I said, man, it would be so great if we could put together, like, some kind of artistic expression, you know? Maybe it would have artwork or music or some, uh, some different writings, some scripture passages, maybe some poetry that we could put on our website and invite our people every day to kind of log in and see this stuff and just as a way to kind of prepare their heart for the coming of Easter. And as we started sort of thinking about what it look, would look like to put all that together, I got, Billy, uh, Billy sent me a link. He goes, have you seen this thing that Biola does? And so I looked at it. It turns out Biola has been doing this very same, like the thing we wanted to do, they've been doing better than us for like 10 plus years already. And in fact, if you've been a part of their sort of Lent project, you'll know that it's, uh, it's incredible. And it's everything we just talked about. Every day they post a different Bible passage. There's a different reflection from a thinker. Uh, somebody, sometimes it's people in the school there, or outside people. There's music and there's artwork and it, it's really, it's really fantastic. So we contacted them and said, hey, instead of creating our own deal, would you care if we just partnered with you as a church? Can we partner with Biola's uh, Center for Christianity, Culture, and the Arts? And they were like, yeah, that's kind of why we do this, right? We want to do partnership. So um, we're going to, we're kind of committing to that as a family starting this Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. Um, every day you can either go to this web address you see on the card and there is a new sort of daily reflection there, or you can sign up for their email uh, and they'll just send you a link every day in your inbox. It'll send you a link that'll take you to that. I would encourage you as part of this family, take the time every day. It'll set aside a little bit of time, take some time to read, to respond, to really listen to the spirit of God. And then in addition to just looking at the content online there, I would like to encourage all of us to find at least one point during the week. So for the next, whatever it is, five weeks until Easter, find a point during the week where you can gather up with a smaller group of people and reflect on what God is saying to you through this content. So maybe that's with a men's Bible study. Maybe you're part of a life group. Maybe you're part of a core group. Maybe you've got a, uh, you know, for all, you know, all that matters, you, you maybe just get your family together on Saturday night around the dinner table and talk about what God is stirring in you 
so that it isn't just us consuming this information as individuals, but it's us processing this, individ- this information as a family as we prepare and head towards Easter. Last thing I'll say about that is that I get that there may be some of you who don't have like a smartphone or you don't have access to a computer. Um, if you're one of those who doesn't have access to a computer or a smartphone and so you can't participate because you don't have access, we actually got permission from uh, the CCCA to, to do like a physical printout of some of this content. Um, we're not printing a ton of them because we're guessing most people do have internet access and whatever. But if you're someone who doesn't have a smartphone or a computer, uh, you can check in at the connections desk today and they can actually give you a week at a time, they'll give you some of that content in printed form in advance because we want everybody to have access to this. So uh, there's a couple ways to get into it. I just wanted to put that in front of you as we uh, sort of prepare our hearts for Easter. Now, I know that when you, for some of you, uh, when you read the word Lent, uh, you get a little panicky, you know, that feels like, you know, is the Pope making us do this or whatever? Uh, The evangelical Protestants in the room maybe get a little bit nervous about Lenten practices. Let me tell you, there is great historic Orthodox Protestant tradition of preparing the heart for Easter uh, through a Lenten season. It doesn't have to be a papal thing. It doesn't have to be a Catholic thing. Um, it, it, is, it is something that absolutely is in our history and something that I think can be utilized for the glory of God and not just for legalism or routine practice. So there's a way for us to even redeem maybe what it's been in other practices and to use it, I think, uh, in, in sort of a, an instrumental way in our lives. So I encourage you into that. All of that to say, put that card away. Open your Bible to John chapter 6, if you don't mind. And we'll dive into our ongoing study of the book of John. Uh, Last week, we were at the beginning of John chapter 6. So if you were studying with us, you'll remember uh, we were studying through what is one of the most famous passages, I think famous stories, in the gospel. In fact, uh, one, one of the only things that's repeated in all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the feeding of the 5,000, right? Jesus is able to feed 5,000 men plus their families with just a couple of loaves and fish. He's got 12 baskets of extra food left over. And at the end of the text we studied last week, it says that Jesus ended up retreating from the presence of the crowd because they were so moved by the free lunch they got that they wanted to take him by force and make him king. So I want you to tuck away in your head the idea, first of all, that Jesus doesn't want to be made king based on what he can provide. Does that make sense? He doesn't want to be made king because he can provide some bread and some fish. He's not interested on that being the basis for his kingship. In fact, Jesus wants to be honored as king because he is king already, right? The people want to make him king because they see that as a vehicle to power. They see it as a vehicle to satisfy themselves, and he retreats. Now, as we pick it up in verse 16, we see his disciples have been left by themselves because he's retreated to the mountain. Uh, in, just, in 16 and following, we see they kind of get in the boat and they head back home. So it says, verse 16 of John 6, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Um, John here is trying to paint a picture for us, both of the literal storm that they're in the midst of, but he's also trying to say something figurative here as well. I want want us not to miss, miss the picture as we're imagining the story. The disciples are now apart from Jesus and they get in the boat and they head out on the water and it says it was dark, not just because it's nighttime, but the the writer is making a point here that to be apart from Jesus is to be in darkness and that to be apart from Jesus is to be in the midst of a storm and that to be apart from Jesus out on the water, I mean for the Jewish people, their perception of any large body of water like the Sea of Galilee or even the ocean was that it was representative of chaos 
that it was representative of something wild and uncontrollable that man could not harness. And so they're out on the water, the wild, the chaos, the darkness, the fear. And it's into that situation then that Jesus comes. They're rowing across the water. It says in in 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, if you were to read Matthew chapter 14, which tells this story, or Mark chapter 6, there are some details in those gospels that John doesn't include. John, for instance, doesn't include the idea that, that Peter ended up asking to get out of the boat and walk on the water as well. John doesn't include the fact that Jesus calms the storm. In fact, in John's account of this story, it doesn't tell us that the storm is necessarily ever calmed. We know it was because of the other accounts. But John is trying to focus us on something really specifically here. It says that they're out in the middle of the darkness, in the wild, in the storm, and that Jesus comes to them. That tells us something about who Jesus is. He comes to them walking on top of the water. What is it that they're afraid of? What is it that they're fearful about? They're fearful because of the wind and the waves. I want us to see right out of the gate this morning that our God has the ability to walk on the face of the thing we're afraid of to get closer to us. Think about that for a second. The thing that they can't control, the thing that's so wild, the thing that they're so afraid of is actually a pathway that Jesus, he goes, oh, you're nervous about the storm? Yeah, I use the storm as a walking path to get closer to you. So no matter who you are or what kind of fear or darkness or doubt or chaos you're wrestling with this morning, I want you to see in this initially the truth that whatever it is you're afraid of, Jesus can use as a pathway to draw nearer to you. Mark actually tells us that Jesus was sort of intending to pass by. I don't know what that would be like, you know, like they're out in the thing, they're trying to row, the storm is blowing, and Jesus is like, hey guys, what's up? Kind of cruising past, and they're like, hey, what's up? In the middle of a storm, He calls out to them because they're afraid. They're afraid. In fact, Mark and Matthew both tell us that they thought Jesus was a ghost, which is interesting. And Jesus says to them here, look at what he says. This is the only dialogue we get in this story, which is also different than Matthew and Mark. Jesus says to them in verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. The reason for their fear to recess, the reason for their fear to go away is the very presence of Jesus. He doesn't say to them, hey, I've got the power over the storm in this context. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? I'm a good rower. I'll jump in with you. He doesn't say any of those things. What does he say? It's me. You have no need for fear. His presence, his person is what's intended to cast their fear away. And the same thing again is true for us today. Whatever we're afraid of, whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're wrestling with, the darkness and the chaos and the fear, Jesus would look at us and say, do you see me because I'm the answer to the thing that's troubling you? It is I. In fact, that the, the words there, it is I, could be translated I am. Uh, commentators and theologians are kind of evenly divided on whether Jesus here is making a reference to the Old Testament way that God referred to himself, I am. And the reason in the ESV translation it's translated uh, it is I as opposed to I am is because they're, they're, they're not exactly sure that he's referring to himself as God in this particular text. But what he's absolutely saying is you don't have to be afraid because of who I am. Because of who I am. And then it says, I love this in verse 21. Look at what it says in 21. It says, they were glad to take him into the boat. Yeah, no duh, right? Oh, they were glad to take him in the boat. That word glad means eager or desirous. They were like, hey, it's nice to see you out there standing on the water, Jesus. That's great and all, but why don't you get in this boat with us, right? They were anxious to get him in the boat. They wanted him nearer to them, and that is a proper response. What's really interesting, they were glad to take him into the boat, 21, 
And immediately, verse 21, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now that's sort of a miraculous detail that the other gospel writers don't give us, that when Jesus gets into the boat, they were eager to take him into the boat, and the moment he's in the boat, they arrive at their destination. In our teaching team meeting this week, um, Kyle says, he goes, you know what, I learned from this, I learned that uh, when Jesus is in your boat, you've arrived, right? I kind of like that, right? It's kind of, if I was going to give it a little catchphrase, smart. I use the Google Maps, you know? And uh, to navigate, you know, whenever you're going someplace, you punch into Google Maps. And I like Google Maps because whenever you get to your destination, right, you punch in, I'm mostly punching in fast food restaurants. We punch in KFC or whatever, and then you get there. When you pull into the parking lot, she goes, you've arrived, right? Have you heard her do that? And I always feel, I actually, I always literally say thank you. I'm like, thank you, Google. You're not so bad yourself, right? You've arrived, right? Jesus gets into the boat, and they've arrived. They're at their destination, Right? Jesus has power not only to deliver food to those who are hungry, but in this next story in John 6, we see that he has the power to calm the fears and ease what troubles those who are troubled. He has power over the wind and the waves, and they're at their destination. The people who had been fed in the feeding of the 5,000, meanwhile, are really, uh, they're really anxious to see Jesus again. They want to see him because they, Jesus has just authoritatively proved that every high school economics teacher ever is irrefutably wrong, right? All high school economics teachers will tell you if you've gone to class, they'll say there is no such thing as a fruit, free lunch, right? And here Jesus has just proved that's not true. There is such a thing as a free lunch, And the people are anxious to get more of that, right? Jesus has fed them, and they're anxious to get more. So they're watching to see where he is so they can get more food. It says in John 6.22, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. I want you to get this picture. The crowds that had been fed by Jesus, the bread and the fish, they're anxious to follow him. They want to know where he's at. They want to know where he's going to do the miraculous thing next because they want to fill their stomachs again because they want more food. And so they're paying attention to who gets in which boat and where the boats go and where Jesus is and he didn't go with his disciples. There are other boats that come because they've heard of the miraculous meal that was delivered and they all kind of get there and they go, yeah, Jesus and his disciples are not there. So they pile into those same boats and they go across to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And we might go, well, that's awesome, right? It's awesome that the people are seeking Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself says, come and see. So isn't this cool that the people are seeking Jesus? On one level, the answer to that question is, yeah, it's always great when people are seeking Jesus. But this morning, as we look at the first part of this discourse in John 6, we'll look at the first part this week and the second part next week. This morning, what we'll see is that the people are seeking Jesus, but they're seeking him for the wrong reasons. Do you ever, uh, do you ever go to Costco just to eat the free samples? <laughs> Right? You ever do that? I mean, am I the, I'm the only one who does that. Like, I, I go to Costco, and it's like, you don't eat before you go, because you know they're going to have all these little things. But I kind of feel guilty, like I'm taking advantage, right? When I'm eating the free samples, I feel a little bit guilty, because I never buy the stuff they're, they're, like, putting on sample. I always just eat the samples. Not only do I feel guilty, but if you step back a little bit from, like, the, the whole sample thing at Costco, you kind of feel ashamed of humanity, right? Because there's, like, all these people, like, fighting and pushing each other over and whatever, and they're all trying to get up to 
the table to get like a cracker with cheese on it as if they've never had a cracker with cheese before. You know, like, whatever. They're like diving and peep knocking over tables to try and get some crab salad that's gross anyway or whatever. And I just always feel so gross about like my own heart and about what is spoken about humanity at the sample tables. And so... A few years ago, I got to this place where I'm, I was trying to counteract that, and, and what, the way I decided to counteract it is I, as I started to engage in like conversation with the sample givers, you know what I'm talking about? So you, we, instead of just grabbing your cracker with cheese on it, you walk up, you know, and you're like, oh, what is this? Pigs in a blanket. Oh, yeah, what, what is that? You know, and they're like, well, you know, it's a, it's a tiny hot dog wrapped in a, in a pastry thing. And I'm like, so it's not an actual blanket? Is that what you're telling me? And they're like, no, it's not an actual blanket. And I'm like, so, but it is a pig. And they're like, well, it's actually 100% beef. And I'm like, so it's a 100% beef pig in a pastry blanket? What is this crazy thing you're telling me of? How much are these? Is there a discount if I buy 1,000? You know, like I kind of do that thing, right? Try and keep them on the hook. Meanwhile, I'm asking them questions about the nutritional value and where these things were processed and how they compare to other pigs in a blanket I've had in the past, whatever I can think of, to engage in a conversation so that I can just sort of keep taking hot dogs off the table, right? (laughs) Asking questions, but mostly just trying to fill up my stomach. Can I tell you, that's exactly what the people here in this passage are doing. They are engaging with him, but what you'll see as we walk through the first half of this discord is that their engagement at every point is trying to push him back again toward giving them more food. And before we look at them with a critical eye or before we look at these people with judgmentalism, what we have to recognize is that there's a great sort of, there's a great conviction for me and for us in the text as well because there is a tendency on our part to come to Jesus not because of who he is, but for what we can get from him. We have, we have this motivation, this ulterior motive, and yeah, we'll sort of listen to what he has to say, and we'll sit through the thing, but we've got some things we'd like him to do for us, some things we'd like him to give us. And Jesus here confronts them on five different ways in which he wants to contrast their approach with the right approach, right? And he's trying to juxtapose those things. We'll kind of walk through it. This crowd arrives. Look at verse um, 25 of John 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I think when did you come here is a really interesting question, right? They don't ask him, how did you come here? They don't ask him, why did you come here? They say, when? Why when? Well, I think it speaks to the fact that they'd been doing a lot of work to keep track of his movements, that they were trying to predict where their next free meal was going to come from, and they'd been watching the beach, they'd been watching the boats, they'd been counting who got into what boat and where, and now all of a sudden they find him in Capernaum, and they're a little bit frustrated that all of their efforts had been in vain. So they say, when did you come here? When did you get here, Jesus? And look at his response. In his, in his response, we see the first of his confrontations here. In 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is pointing out the fact that the feeding of the 5,000 and, and connected to that, I would say also the calming of the storm here in John 6, that both of those things are signs. That both of those things are signs. They are, liter- and I mean that in a literal sense. They are signs that are meant to point in a different direction. They are signs that are meant to make you sit up a little bit straighter and go, what is this sign pointing to? What does this sign say? Where is this sign leading me? And Jesus looks at them and he says, you've come all the way over here, not because you saw signs, not because you saw what was done and you're looking past to the deeper meaning, but you've come because I filled up your stomach with bread and fish and you'd like to have your stomach filled up again. 
I'm reminded of what it says in Philippians chapter three, right? Paul says in Philippians 3, 18 and following, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus looks at them and he says, you've been focused on the material instead of the meaningful. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the first contrast I want you to see. That the people are focused on the material. Jesus had been doing signs for them. He'd been putting up signs to point them to himself. And instead of seeing the sign, all they saw was bread. Instead of seeing the sign or understanding the meaning, all they saw was a meal. I wonder, as I look at a text like this, how often you and I become preoccupied with the material and we miss the meaningful. We start to look at our very base needs We become preoccupied with the very basics as opposed to looking past the basics that God provides to the deeper thing he's trying to say to us or the greater thing he's trying to call us to. Jesus looks at them and says, you're over here not because you saw the signs, not because you were looking for the meaningful, but because you want the materialistic, because your stomachs were full. Your God is your belly and your eyes are on earthly things. He points out their... their, focus on the material instead of the meaningful. Not only that, look at what he says next. Back to John chapter six. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, you're looking at the material instead of the meaningful. Not only that, you're focused on the temporal instead of the eternal. Or we could say the transient instead of the eternal. Things that perish, things that don't last. He says, you've spent all night counting boats and watching who gets in and out of them. You spent all night working your way across the water or whatever, but he says, what you care about is stuff that doesn't last. All you're interested in is another meal, but you know what? I fed you yesterday and you're hungry again. Does that tell you anything? It tells you that what you're hungry for is not actually what you need because more bread and more fish or another sandwich won't actually satisfy you. He says, you're focused on the temporal instead of the eternal. He says, don't work for the things which perish, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because the Father has set his seal on him. There's a lot packed into that. But what Jesus is saying to them and what he's saying to us is that we spend a vast amount of our time. I mean, just think about your last week. Think about the last seven days. And I want you to think for a second about how much time and effort and energy and work and striving you put into gaining things for yourself that will not last. Gaining things for yourself that do not matter in eternity. Gaining things that ultimately won't even satisfy you for very long. The great majority of us as human beings spend the great majority of our life chasing after things that don't satisfy. We're working hard to get more money or we're working hard to, you know, work our way up the ladder or we're working hard to get more stuff. We're working hard to to be able to influence more people or have more power. But none of those things last. We've done this before, but look around the room. Everything you see ends up in the dump or the graveyard. Everything you see, and yet so much of our time and effort on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis, is spent trying to collect things that we cannot keep and that don't have any eternal value. He says, why are you working so hard for a sandwich when you're just going to be hungry again tomorrow? Instead of working for the food that perishes, he says, work for the food that endures to eternal life, which I'll give you. Eternal life, he gives us. 
Eternal life is not something that we buy. It's not something we earn. It's not something we trade for. He says, I'll give you eternal life, and there is a food that endures into eternal life. What is that food? Well, it's not the temporal things of our world. It's not money and power and prestige and fame. The currency of the kingdom of God, the only thing that lasts into eternity, that doesn't go to the dump or the graveyard, is the glory of God. The currency of the kingdom is not gold and jewels and diamonds. In fact, as we understand it, the, the, in, in, in heaven, in eternity, gold and jewels and diamonds are used as decorations. Gold is asphalt in eternity, right? The stuff that we say has eternal value is the stuff that lasts into eternity. That's God's glory and God's glory alone. So look, when he says don't work for things that perish, he's not saying, hey, if you're an architect or you're a bus driver or you're a caregiver or you're a school teacher, quit doing that because you're just working for a paycheck. Stop doing it and instead just, you know, focus on eternal things. No, what he's saying is that it's possible to do the very same things but have the byproduct be eternal. Instead of, as an architect, just trying to create plans that impress people or trying to create plans that put money in your pocketbook, you try and create plans that reflect the creative glory of God. And when you do that, yeah, your bills will get paid, but what's more, there is glory for God that exists in eternity and can never fade or spoil, right? If you're a bus driver or a caregiver, right? If you're a lunch lady, if you work at the Chick-fil-A or whatever, it doesn't matter what you do, It has eternal potential, but it has to do with your purpose. Is your purpose to put money in the bank? Is your purpose to impress the people around you? Or is your purpose to glorify God? That is the food that endures to eternal life. An eternal life that Jesus gives to us by his grace because the Father has placed his seal on him. What does it mean that the Father has placed his seal on him? Well, in a monarchy, the king would place his official seal on someone who carried his authority and power, who spoke on behalf of the king. We saw in John chapter five, two weeks ago, Jesus says this in verse 26. He says, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, right? What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the fulcrum. I'm the pivot point. I'm the tipping point of all human history. And those who put their faith in me will have resurrection life. And those who don't, it says in John 3, the wrath of God remains on them because they're condemned already. Jesus is saying, God has put his seal on me. How does God put his seal on him? Jesus has the authority. Jesus is the tipping point of human history. He says, as the son of man, I will give you eternal life, and you can be working now. Instead of just rowing your boats and trying to get another sandwich, you can be working not to fill your bellies, but to glorify me, the food that lasts into eternity. So he speaks to them not only about their focus on the material instead of the meaningful, he speaks to them about their focus on the temporal versus the eternal. Jesus says it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not lay up for yourselves, this is Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says you're working so hard for things that are temporary and transient, but you could be working today for that which will endure, the glory of God. Back to John chapter six, it's really interesting. He says this, he says, it's not about work for transient things, it's about work for eternal things, and watch what they do. Their response is pretty good. They say in 28, 
what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, if it's about works, then tell us what works we need to do, right? What do you want us to do? Just give us the checklist, right? Tell us what we need to do. And that, that makes sense coming from them because these are people who grew up in the Hebrew tradition, in the Jewish tradition, where it was all about compliance with the law. It was all about adhering to the checklist and doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And so Jesus says, don't work to this thing that, that perishes, but work for that which endures. And they say, okay, tell us what we gotta do. And I want us to stop and think about that for a second also because I think that, again, in our churches and in our community, in the family here, it's so easy for us to fall back into that same request. I would guess that there are probably some of you who've wandered into this place today hoping that a guy like me will just get up on the stage and give you a checklist of things to do and not to do, right? That I would look at you and say, oh, yeah, you know, if you want to go to heaven or you want to have a relationship with God, just don't drink and smoke and dance and whatever. You know, like, whatever, you just want a list. And then you'll go out and by your own strength and through your own striving, you'll just do everything you can to whatever, walk old ladies across the street or memorize Bible verses or work in the Sunday school just to check the boxes. They look at them and they say, tell us what boxes we got to check to be doing the works of God because that's what they know. Can I tell you, that's not just what they know, it's what we have known and it's what every worldview on the planet espouses. Every major faith system on the planet today says you can do it. Work hard. You want to have eternal life? You want to experience bliss? You want to be reincarnated? You want to find you know, some sort of karmic happiness? Then what you got to do is try harder. Here's the checklist. Do these things and you can have life. The Holy Scriptures are the only ones. The, 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 the worldview of the Lord Jesus is the only worldview on the planet that says you can't do it. You're not the little engine that could. You're the little engine that can't and that's why you need a savior. It's why you need to be rescued. It's why you need life given to you by the Son of Man on whom the Father has placed his seal. When we come to the scriptures or we come to Jesus going, hey, tell me what to do, we're ignoring what he said. They look at him and they say, okay, if we have to do these works that endure to eternal life, tell us what the works of God are. Look at his answer. He says to them, verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. There's nothing added to that. What is the work of God? What does God require of us? Faith. So the third contrast, Jesus has already said, you're focused on the materialistic or the material instead of the meaningful. You're focused on the temporal instead of the eternal. Now he's saying you're focused on your doing. You're focused on your works instead of faith. And I think we have to take that one on the chin as well. Can I tell you, it's a lot easier to do the checklist, to not drink and not smoke and not fight or whatever, than it is to believe Belief is something that God stirs in us. It's not something we do. It's apart from our action entirely. But that's hard for us because we're people who want to do the thing. We want to check the boxes. Jesus says, no, what God requires of you is believing in me. Believing in me. So he contrasts material versus meaningful. He contrasts temporal versus eternal. He contrasts work versus faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says the same thing. Ephesians 2 says it's, it, that by grace we've been saved, that it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 3, 28, that might be familiar to some of you. Romans 3, 28 says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's not faith in addition to the works of the law, but faith apart from the works of the law. They say, what do we have to do? And Jesus says, believe. The work of God is belief. And then watch what they do in verse 30. So they said to him, 
Well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, right? Uh, This is basically them going, tell us more about the pigs in the blanket, right? All this stuff you've said about the work of God is fascinating, but let's get back to the conversation about our free lunch, right? They look at him and they say, well, what sign can you do? What sign can you do that we would see it and believe you? Uh, we'll give you a good example of a, you know, if you're just looking for suggestions, uh, we happen to know that in Exodus chapter 16, our father Moses gave the people manna. I mean, manna, manna maybe that would be a good idea. Maybe we'd do some manna right now. I mean, I could use some manna. Could you use some manna? What are they doing? They're still serving the God of their stomach. They're still chasing their appetites. They're still chasing their desires. They're still not looking at the sign. Instead, they're looking at the bread. And so they say, if you do it, do something so that we can see it and believe you. Can I tell you that's upside down? But it is indicative of human beings. We love to say to God, do it, and I'll see what you've done, and I'll believe you. We say, when I see it, I'll believe you. Can I tell you that Jesus, again and again, we've seen this already, Jesus again and again is saying, no, it's not, you'll see it and believe me, it's believe me and you'll see it. Believe me and you'll see it. But we get that backwards all the time. God, jump through my hoops. God, do the thing I'm telling you to do. God, obey me and then I'll trust you. Jesus says, no, trust me and you'll see the truth you're looking for. They say to him, what sign will you do? Their focus is on what Moses was able to provide and Jesus comes in with his fourth contrast here. He says, after they've said, hey, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, He says this in 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The fourth contrast he paints is a focus on a messenger instead of the message. They look at Jesus and they go, hey, I don't know, you know, about you, we're still kind of making up our mind, but we know about Moses and Moses was able to provide lunch, right? Moses gave manna, our people all ate it. By the way, for the record, the people grumbled and complained about manna. So now he's asking for something that historically his people did not like, right? But they go, hey, Moses did it, what can you do? And Jesus comes back really quick and he goes, eh, Moses didn't give you manna. God gave you manna. Make sure you don't look too hard at the messenger, but instead look at the message. We beat this drum around here a lot, but for for all of us, our faith cannot be in institutions. Our faith can't be in organized religion. Our faith can't be in preachers or pastors or shepherds or teachers. Our, Our faith cannot be in the vehicle or in the messenger. Our faith has to be in the message giver and in the message itself. And if we don't work actively to train our hearts and minds, we will focus on the vehicle. Moses was a great vehicle for truth. Moses was a great vehicle for manna, but he wasn't the source of manna. The manna itself was a great source of nourishment, but the manna was just a sign and a type pointing to Jesus. And when we focus too much on the bread, we miss what the bread was pointing to. Jesus looks at them and says, you think Moses did that? Let me me fix your history for you. What Moses gave you came from God. Moses was a vehicle. The manna was a sign. But both of those things came from God. And what God is giving you now is better than that. He says, God gave you the manna, but now God has given you what? The true bread. Come back to the text. He says, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is going, you're asking for lunch and I'm giving you something so much better, true bread that comes down from heaven, from God. And look at their response. They go, tell us again about the pigs in the blanket, right? He says, the true bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, verse 33. And in 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Lunch, did I hear you mention lunch, right? Give us this bread always is not a terrible prayer, just for, the, just for the record. That's actually a great prayer for those of us who understand what the true bread is. When you understand who Jesus is, when you understand that he is the gift of God, that he is the bread from heaven, then to pray, give us this bread always is actually a, a great thing to do. We wanna be satisfied in him. But they're talking about lunch again. They say, give us this bread always, and Jesus says this in 35, the fifth and last contrast in this section. Jesus said to them, I am the bread. They say, give us this bread. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. This is the first of Jesus's I am statements in the gospel of John. We'll see many more of these to come. He says, you're looking for a sandwich, but I myself am the bread. You're looking for satisfaction, but you cannot find it in another meal or another job or another religious practice or another institution. I am the only thing that can satisfy you. We are insatiable as people. You get that, right? We're working all the time to try and satisfy ourselves with new experiences or new tastes or new adventures or new ideas. We're always trying to to satisfy ourselves, but Jesus says, I'm the only bread that will keep you from being hungry and thirsty. He's not saying you'll never be physically hungry or physically thirsty again, but what he's saying is we all live our lives as human beings, we live our lives just trying to find something to scratch what's itching us. We live our lives trying to satisfy this thing within us, and we try and, we, we try and do that in all kinds of different ways, but none of them will ever satisfy. It's why the writer to Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes 1 says, the eye never has its fill of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. You look at a thing and you like it and the very next moment you go, I kind of need to see that again. I kind of want to taste that again. Why? These people were fed by Jesus, bread and fish, the day before and immediately they're going, how do we get more of that? Why? Because that literal bread can't satisfy them. That lunch will never do the trick. Jesus says, I am the bread and he, he who eats this bread will never be hungry or thirsty again. I'm the only thing that can satisfy what you're trying to satisfy yourself with. I'm the only one who can do that. Ephesians chapter one, verse three, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, we receive every spiritual blessing. He is the satisfaction of what we're hungry for, what we're thirsty for. And as long as we continue to just try and focus on the material instead of the meaningful, or as long as we're trying to focus on the temporal, that which perishes, instead of that which is eternal, as long as we're just trying to work to do the works of God as opposed to believe, as long as we're focused on the messenger instead of the message, we'll fall into the same trap that Jesus highlights in this this last section for this week, where he points out to them that the fact that they are seeing but not believing that they're seeing but not believing. He says, back to John chapter six, in verse 36, he says, I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. It's amazing to me how, how so much of church life is about, hey, show, show, us, show us what God is doing. 
Show us what he's doing. We, we come here on a Sunday. We jump into programs during the week. We just want to see more. We want to taste more. We want to experience something more. I hope the band plays a song I like. I hope the preacher doesn't go too long. I hope the parking spots aren't too far away, right? Show me, show me, show me, right? And Jesus goes, no, you've seen. You've seen. I got nothing else to show you. You've seen it. The issue isn't whether or not you've seen it. The issue is that you, that you don't believe. The issue is that you don't believe. It's possible for us to see and almost have too much seeing and never to put our faith in Christ, never to believe in him, never to trust in him. And Jesus says that the difference there is the difference between life and death. I've seen, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. We want Jesus many times for what he does, but we need Jesus for who he is. It's amazing to me how often we sort of fall into the trap of recognizing that Jesus is a way to get what we want, right? I love Jesus because he saved me from hell, or I love Jesus because he answers my prayers, or I love Jesus because he first loved me. Can I tell you, all of that is selfish. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but if you love Jesus because of what he does for you, or because of what he's given you, or because of what you get out of him, you don't love Jesus, we don't, we don't love Jesus because of what we get. We love Jesus because of who he is. What he's calling them to again and again is to say, you don't, you don't want my bread. You don't need my bread. I am the bread. Can Jesus calm the storms of our lives? He certainly can. Can Jesus walk across the face of the waves to get to us? He certainly can and he does. Can Jesus feed 5,000 people with a couple pieces of bread and some fish? He certainly can. But the fish and the bread... The calming of the storms, all of these are just signs. They're signs meant to point to our greater need. And our greater need is not what Jesus does for us, but who he is. I, I love to go and visit my grandmother. She's, uh, she's elderly. She's in an assisted care facility in Phoenix. And I like to go there. And I'll tell you, when I go visit my grandmother, I don't go because I need something from her, Right? There really isn't anything my grandmother can give me. I don't go with the list of things. I don't say, hey, grandma, it'd be really helpful if you know, you'd start putting me in your will or whatever. I don't need, she's given me a lot in my life, right? She's given me a lot, both physical things, emotional things, educational things. My grandma's given me a ton. But when I go to see my grandmother, it's not because I want something from her. I go to see my grandma because I want to be with my grandma. I just want to sit in her presence. I just want to know her. I want us to be together. I am glad to get her in the boat, right? Eager to get her in the boat just to be in her presence. Is that how you feel about Jesus? I, I think there are many of us who need to look at the way that Jesus is speaking to these people and we need to receive this and look at our own lives and, and ask ourselves, am I coming to Jesus for what he gives me or am I coming to Jesus because he's Jesus and there is no other? Because there's a, there's a drastic difference between the two. It's not that Jesus gives us bread but that Jesus is our bread. It's about his person and his presence. That's the, what the sign is pointing to. Let's not miss the sign because we get so focused on the pig in a blanket. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us an acute awareness of our own condition, an acute awareness of our own motivations, the places where we focused on the material instead of the meaningful or the temporal instead of the eternal, the places where we've been striving instead of trusting in you, the places where we set our, size, our eyes on your messenger instead of the message or where we've seen but not believed. And would you 
Would you call us to a deeper faith? Would you call us to a deeper understanding that you're, you're not just the one who gives us bread, but you are our bread? We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.